You're listening to the Alternative Investment Podcast. We give you the insights and strategies you need to grow your wealth with alternative investments. Now, here's your host, Andy Hagens. Welcome to the show. I'm Andy Hagens, and today we have a fantastic episode for you today. So, Africa, it's not only the fastest growing continent in the world. It's also an economic growth story, might be the growth story of this upcoming century. So I'm really excited to dive in. This is something different, something different than a lot of the stuff that we talk about on the show, a lot of the asset classes we usually discuss. Joining me today is Jim Chu, CEO at Untapped Global. Jim, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. And your company is totally unique, you know, covering unique companies like yours. It's honestly my favorite part of my job, my favorite part of the show. There's so many exciting things going on on alternatives, and this is just something totally different. And so I was reading about Untapped Global, and I'm like, this is amazing. My audience needs to know about this. So we have a lot of ground to cover, but why don't we start uh, with you? You know, Before we get to your company and your platform, what is your background and, and how did it lead to, to founding Untapped Global? Yeah, well, you know, I I come from a pretty uh, I would call stereotypical background. Grew up on the West Coast, went to Stanford, worked in the tech sector in the '90s, 2000s. I started angel investing in the 2000s, um, uh, became an LP in a few venture funds, uh, and I thought that was kind of it. You know, that's that's life, right? You're a tech worker and you you make some money and you invest in startups. Mm-hmm. Life is done, right? Yeah. Well, of course, you get into a little bit of philanthropy, and that's what I did starting in 2010. Uh, right after the earthquake in Haiti, I donated and, and volunteered a lot. And I think that's where uh, this part of my story really started. I started realizing that, first of all, there was a desire to drive change in the world, and I think a lot of us do. But then I also realized that the typical ways that you think of when you think about saving the world, quote-unquote, again, philanthropy, charity, et cetera, wasn't really moving the needle. Uh, In fact, it was oftentimes going the other way. So in Haiti, a lot of the aid and charity was at best a Band-Aid. And in many cases, it was actually making the problems worse by creating- Disempowering in in a way? Disempowering and created a separate incentive structure that I like to usually, I like to say this in my kind of colloquial business language, every NGO has two customers. You have the people you're trying to serve and the people who give you the money. And you know you think they have the same interests, but they don't. And push comes to shove, the organizations that do really well, quote unquote, really well, i.e. raise the most amount of money, guess what they're really good at? Raising money. But are they actually good at doing what they're supposed to be doing? Ah, maybe, maybe not. Right. So, Jim, you're already, your story is already pulling me in because (laughs) I actually had a recent guest and I, my quote was, if there's one thing I've learned from the Bible or everyday life, it's that human beings respond to incentives and human yep. nature exists. And so show me a business model or a philanthropic model or show me any organization. I want to understand how it aligns with human incentives rather than fighting against human incentives. Right. And human incentives and the structure of incentives and how it creates actions and behavior in a system is complicated, right? It isn't just like, oh, Yes. Make sure everybody believes in the right values and everything will yeah. be good. Yeah, you know, you can have a lot of good intentions lead to bad things. We all know that. 
But, you know, I, I kind of concluded this very quickly in my volunteer and donation work, charity work. And coming from a couple of decades of business, I said, you know what? Somewhat arrogantly, we're going to change this. We're going to make the customer the Haitian consumer who mm. wants and so we launched a business. I, I co-founded a business with the IFC and FMO, uh, the Dutch Development Bank and the, the investment arm of the World Bank. And we created this water infrastructure company in Haiti. And without going into all the details, that's probably another two-hour episode, I learned a lot of things. One of which is that, first of all, uh, a lot of things that we know uh, intuitively, there's a lot of entrepreneurship out there. And there's a lot of investment opportunities out there. But the more important thing I learned is the way we invest, the way investors put money uh, you know, or provide capital to businesses and entrepreneurs is very broken. It serves very specific markets and situations, but it's leaving a load of opportunity on the table. Mm. And so that's what we really created Untap Global to fix. So wait, do you mean, to, if I'm reading between the lines, you mean the financial system, banking system, a lot of these global systems are optimized for Western countries, for the United States, for the United Kingdom, and that- they, for, for very specific, yes, in a very general high level, but for very specific situations like hmm. um, venture capital is really good at asset lights, winner takes all, big IPO markets, plus hmm. some of Europe. Makes sense. China. So software, software, and Netflix the world, and LinkedIn. Right? Makes yeah, sense. makes perfect sense, right? Semiconductors in the seventies makes perfect sense. Winner takes all. Uh, commercial debt, really good for giving money to people who already have money. Hey, you want to borrow a million bucks? No problem. Show me you have a one point five million, and then we're going to hire a bunch of lawyers and make sure that if you run off with my one million, I'm going to go after your one point five million. Mm-hmm. That works really, really well. But for everybody else, you're kind of out of luck. Now, in the U.S. market, there's some alternatives to how you can get access to that kind of capital. But especially emerging markets, I come across over and over and over again, and I did as an investor in emerging markets, all these great companies where I myself said, I love this company, but I can't invest in them. Where's the exit opportunity? Mm-hmm. Oh, Where's the collateral? I can't do this. I just can't. I, I can't. I can't do this with my children's college fund. I can't. But I know they're profitable businesses. So how do I actually invest in these companies? And so that was really the genesis of Untapped, in the sense that that's and, and it's I'm making a very long story very short because I don't want to bore your audience. But basically, we created this model out of a need. Need as an investor to capture some of this great opportunity in emerging markets, but also because I really wanted to help. And by that point in, in my life, this was about you know five, five, six years ago, I'd already fully concluded that the best way to drive change in the world is to put capital in the hands of entrepreneurs who can really solve problems because they know those problems, because they're mm. part of that community, because they're part of that market. If you do that and you do that efficiently and well, everybody's better off. The world is better off. Investors are better off. Entrepreneurs are better off. Yeah, it's it's interesting, Jim. While there's so much to unpack there, you know, one thing that getting capital in the hands of entrepreneurs, local entrepreneurs. I mean, I'm a Roman Catholic, and, and in our faith, that's the principle of subsidiarity. 
mm-hmm. meaning that decisions are oftentimes they're best made at the most local level that is practical, right? So national security decisions, they can't be made locally. They need to be made at the national level, but family decisions are best made at the family level, right? Not at the society level. And similarly, capital allocation or entrepreneurship, you know, for a local entrepreneur, the more localized you can make those decisions, they're just going to have better outcomes because what we talked earlier, incentives. Who has the most incentive to serve their local community? Well, the person who lives there, right? Not the external NGO or whatever external actor. Another thing I thought that was really interesting is, you know, it's almost like uh, the teach a man to fish or, or maybe that's the wrong metaphor, but, but your model is, is more about letting others succeed with their God-given abilities. And so it's, it's almost like from thinking through what you said, giving capital to resourceful entrepreneurs, like, well, that's the goal of every greedy venture capitalist, right? Like it may, it may coincide with an altruistic motive, but that's yeah. economically that's a great thing, right? No, I, I think it's actually quite ironic. I've come full circle. You know, I started off, you know, pure business and then venture. And really I came and, you know, there's obviously some bias there, but I came to really conclude after literally a decade of doing it another way, that the best way is through what I was doing back 15 years ago, right? investing in entrepreneurs. Hmm. I think the, the, if you will, the thing that, I innovated on was, okay, investing in entrepreneurs, but how do you invest in entrepreneurs? Is it just the 2%, 20% carry venture model? Does that really work? It, it doesn't even work. That doesn't even work for most yeah. GPs in the venture capital yeah, world. Well, we could argue that. Yeah, we yeah. discussed it in a different episode. <laughs> no, you're absolutely yeah. right, right? And so, yeah. you know, I, I always joke, it's ironic that the sector that finances the most innovation is probably the least innovative, finance. Right? We've been stuck with the 2%, 20% carry model since the 1970s, 1980s. Yeah. So, okay. Let's let's go back up, though, to this big demographic story, because I think that's another component here is, you know, as you mentioned, in emerging markets in Africa, there are so many entrepreneurs. There's a spirit of entrepreneurship. There's also a huge demographic boom, you know, contrasted with the West with Europe, with America, Canada, these Western countries that are in this, you know, progressive demographic, you know, frankly, it's, it's, it's not good. It's not good demographically. Whereas other continents, other countries from, from an economist's perspective, this demographic boom is a huge opportunity for investors. So from a human perspective, but also this demographic perspective, um, there's this growth occurring, but there's also a $5.2 trillion financing gap. That's according to World Bank, and maybe it's even larger than that. I don't know, but that's the stat that I got in my research. Just with, just with small businesses, by the way. And that's not even just business in general. They're just small businesses. So we have so much of global population growth is occurring in these countries, which is a good thing from an economic point of view. But the capital is not being allocated there. The the financing is not being allocated there. And in your opinion, is this is this problem getting better? Is it getting worse? Is it just this this gap that companies Great. like yours are changing? 
I'm an optimist, so I'm going to say it's getting better, but it's actually both, right? The population is growing, like you said. Uh, Africa is going to add another billion people to the continent in the next 25, 30 years. Wow. And the rate of growth, and you know, there's huge variability, right? You have places like Congo, which is a failed state. You have you know, other places that are clearly failed states. And then you have other countries that I can objectively see and say they're the future. And I, 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 what I like about um, being in Africa is that there are so many future-seeking people on the continent, whether they're African or even people from outside Africa, trying to create the future. That's really interesting. We have rates of growth of um, six double-digit uh, growth in some of these countries. Wow. And that's just going to continue. Yeah, there, there are challenges, but that's going to continue. Yeah, and, and I mean, just that top line, you know, that's so different from Italy or Japan, but you're not going to see those kind of growth numbers in those economies because of this demographic, you know, issue, or even in the United States, we kind of paper over it by having so much immigration, we kind of paper over it. But so there's just like this over overarching growth occurring in Africa. And as you said, there are some failed states there, but there are other nations. I think Africa have... like one country because it's not. There's right. huge areas, right? There's great places. There are places that I wouldn't step foot in, uh, or at least not with my checkbook. So, well, you know, how do you, I guess, how do you navigate that yeah. aspect? Is there is there some sort of uh, way that you kind of quantify? Like I'm thinking of things like the legal system, the court system. How do you start an LLC? Things that I would take for granted, you know, yeah. How do you kind of navigate and and say this country has enough infrastructure that I, you know, that kind of what do you even call that kind of infrastructure, by the way? Is there a word? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I want to take one step back there because I, I I think it's it's easy to want to cut and paste how you do things from Europe to the US and just say, oh, we're going to do it exactly the same way as we did in the US. So I'm doing the I'm doing the exact thing that we were just talking about. I'm like, how do you start an LLC? Sure. And you're right. like, yeah, well, no, exactly. You... <laughs> yeah. so, so, what's, so it's funny enough. So I, I have a pretty massive portfolio of African companies. Yeah. Um, and the majority of them are actually domiciled outside of Africa, whether that's in Delaware or in the the in Europe, et cetera. Because of the reason you're talking about, a lot of these legal systems don't have great uh, mechanisms for starting and running and managing a company. But to answer your question more directly, we look at all the factors that allow for companies to grow in that country. So yeah, you have to have enough of a legal system to be able to enforce contracts. Okay, that's pretty basic. Um, you have to have a currency that is maybe not you know, low inflation, but at least somewhat predictable. Mm. You can't suddenly have uh, you know, 50% devaluation overnight because some random things happen. You have to have growth, right economic policies by the government to have growth. That's actually, so identifying where those places are is actually the easy part. And most people have already identified them. There's obviously you know, uh, debates on which ones are and which ones aren't, but everyone knows South Africa is a powerhouse. Nigeria is a powerhouse, 200 million people. Egypt is a powerhouse. Uh, East Africa, including Kenya and um, more debatably uh, Uganda, they're all powerhouses. Mm -hmm. Then there are some outlier states like Senegal. Okay, small market, but really innovation and business-friendly government. 
policies or Ghana, again, smaller population, but really innovative and so on. There are enough of these places with enough of a market to be interesting. Just think Nigeria alone, 212 million people and growing. Wow. So if you get it right, all of a sudden you have 200 million customers. That's two thirds of the size of the US, right? Yeah. And so it, with with very little infrastructure, with very little um, function in the economy that is just being built today. So I think identifying the markets is a bit easier. I think the challenge for most is the fragmentation. Mm-hmm. Each one of these markets is actually quite different from each other. So you can't go, we're here, Africa. We've got our $300 million fund. We're here. It's just not going to work that way. You have to understand each market. You have to be part of and immersed in the ecosystem of each of those markets. You have to have all the contacts, the right contacts in those markets. And you have to have some experience in both success and failure in those markets. Otherwise, you're going to screw up. And so- yeah, that, that makes sense. I mean, you, you, you don't want to waltz in and think you know how someplace works. Or, I mean, how- how important is it from the standpoint of an investor? I guess, you know, it's kind of like LP versus GP. I guess you're talking about it from the GP's perspective. You need to be there. You need to know people. You need to have relationships and you can't take anything for granted, right? That's that's really from the GP perspective. For sure. But, you know, you do, I see a lot of folks who try to helicopter, um, help helicopter invest mm-hmm. and, you know, not, not, too dissimilar to how it even worse in the US, like, oh yeah, I heard this company's great. I don't know anything about that market, but because everyone else is kind of doing it, why don't I put some money in? And I see that a lot, especially for American investors who just want to get exposure to Africa. My fear, first of all, I think it's a good thing that they want exposure to Africa. I think that my fear is they just go with the flow, make hyped investments, lose money and go, ah, I knew it. I was going to lose my money anyway. Mm. Like hopping onto hopping onto Bitcoin at yeah fifty five thousand dollars or something. It's you're you you Not got really it at the wrong time. time. Yeah, the, the people who make the money are more enterprising than that. They are. And so I think about being there, and you know, in my mind, uh, I've invested so much in Africa, um, and I have a broad portfolio in Africa because not necessarily because I expect to make a lot of money in the next five years, but because. I want to be there and understand the market, both through successes and failures. And both, fortunately, there have been more successes than failures. Then when things really, really, really turn to, to the positive, I'm there and I know what's going on. Mm. I think so we're like, already- I, I, to make an uh, analogy, it's probably not a perfect analogy, but uh, in China, you know, they started to open up a little bit in the 1970s, I think. Was it uh, Deng Xiaoping? Or, and then obviously companies that kind of got in early, you know, multinational companies. Some of them, I imagine, were rewarded quite well in the 1990s. Well, you know, the ones who made, it, made out the best are the early uh, equity investors and venture investors in Africa, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, their, their whole their whole funds and whole companies even that because they invented or I'm sorry, invented, invested in Alibaba or Tencent or whatever it was way back in, you know, way back when that suddenly they're a major company right, <laughs> or a major fund. But yeah, as you said, you have to get in early. So let, let's talk about your platform at Untapped Global and you've, Jim, you've alluded to this 
but we're not just taking a venture capital private equity model and applying it to Africa. You actually, you know, you have a totally, well, not total. You have a different model. I, I think it's fair to say it's a different model yeah. for investors with different levers, different metrics, almost almost a different way of thinking. So I guess, could you walk us through, you know, versus a, a private equity fund or something in the United States, how do you invest differently in Africa? Yeah. So I think it's important to preface that uh, I started off and I still do a lot of equity investing, what I would call standard early stage tech investing in Africa. And there's a lot of opportunity for that. But in that process, I also discovered there are many other kinds of companies, especially capital intensive companies that just didn't fit that venture model very well, but were generating lots of profitability and cash flow and had tremendous potential to scale. But the venture equity model, i.e. You, you, you buy shares of the company and you wait 10 years for an exit, that's not going to be useful for every single opportunity. So, so, so just to pause you there, you're still looking at companies that can scale. So you're yeah. not, we're not, we're not, you're not looking at on the one hand at venture capital type companies where you could do an equity investment and have this huge exit. That's one thing. You're not comparing that to a micro business or a micro entrepreneur, which is all fine and good. You're actually talking about other types of businesses that can actually scale to be huge but they just require a different model than a venture cap. We're not talking about micro businesses, I guess, is to clarify. Yes, yes and yes, I would actually say. So <laughs> I think the opportunity is we're, we're investing in companies that are tech-enabled and they look like venture investable businesses, but they're actually enabling the micro entrepreneurs. Mm. Because again, if you're adding a billion people to this continent, right now, 70% of the economy is quote-unquote informal. Right. How you define informal form, that's a different question. Means but, we don't, Jim, it means we don't pay taxes on it, right? You don't that's, pay taxes, right? <laughs> that's what it means. We're mostly run by micro entrepreneurs. Okay. What, what are we talking about? The motorcycle taxi driver. Yep. That's how that's how that's the lifeblood of the economy in Africa, right? People moving around on a motorcycle. It's a merchant that sells cold drinks from her refrigerator. Well, where is she going to get the refrigerator? Where is she going to finance her inventory? It's the smallholder farm, uh, the, the farmer who needs um, mechanized irrigation. Where is he going to get that irrigation? All these things require stuff, capital financing, et cetera, et cetera. And none of them, or very few of them, are actually venture investable. They're, they almost sound, you know, not exactly like infrastructure, but in a way, in infrastructural, um, you know, as you say, it's a layer that's kind of. I would argue it is infrastructure, but okay. it's just infrastructure operated and financed in a different way than the way it was financed in the US and even in China, right? So much of this is top down. Hey, we're just going to do a you know huge amount of financing and build all these bridges. Done. In Africa, a lot of the infrastructure of how people move around, minibuses, bush taxis, you want to call them, or motorcycle taxis, or uh, just about everything really is driven by the informal economy by micro entrepreneurs finding a solution, making it work and delivering value to their community. And you 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 couldn't you wouldn't want to uh in this situation you know you you wouldn't want to own a company that's entirely vertical vertically integrated, right? I don't think where or or maybe you would. 
Well, so that's what a lot of people try. And I, I would call that a little bit of cutting and pasting the uh, a, a our models. Like, oh, yes, we're going to come in and we're going to come in and we're going to take over all the taxis in this country. Oh, okay. Really? You know, there are a lot of barriers there. And how are you going to do that? Anyway, yeah, I can guarantee you that company's going to fail. But if they come in and say, you know what? And this is, I think, what's changed between now and let's say 10 years ago. We're going to come in and digitize that entire business. We're going to let everyone do what they're already doing today, which is to lease a motorcycle, ride it, make money, and you know, deliver a, a really valuable service. But we're going to digitize that. So we're going to figure out how to uh, make it easier for the motorcycle taxi driver to get a motorcycle in the first place. And he, it's usually a he driver, is going to pay for it on their phone. And they're going to pay for it by the day. And boom, you just digitized a loan sharking business. And you added all this value because you brought in more capital. You made the whole model more efficient. And that's soft, that kind of soft infrastructure enables so much second and third level economic growth, right? So I mean, much. That's why, is, get, that, is that productivity? If I'm, if I'm using my economic- uh, Absolutely productivity. You're doing yeah. more or less, that's productivity, right? Yeah. That's exactly what the digital transformation, as a lot of people want to call it, is doing. All we're doing, we're financing that digital transformation. Hmm. We're using the data coming from that digital transformation to help us do the underwriting in a new way. So instead of saying, hey, Andy, how much money do you have? Oh, you, you have a thousand bucks? Okay, we'll lend you 600. So I'm saying that, what we're going to say is, you know what, Andy, we're going to, uh, this is a stupid example, but that was, bear with me here. We're going to lend you all the equipment you need to do this podcast. And you're going to collect your revenues online because you're going to have these great subscribers because you're a great podcast uh, host, right? Yeah. True. I collect it straight from your PayPal payments. That's it. And then within six months, you'll pay off all your equipment for podcasting. So it's oh. it's it's collateralized off perhaps income and usage of the equipment versus my assets from day one, which is just right. inherent, so like which is inherently going to work better because you're financing people that are willing to work and that are entrepreneurial and that will create the income stream or or grow the income stream that they already have if they're only given the right tools. So why Correct. why apply some sort of asset test? It doesn't make sense. Well, I would say that it's there are three things that are different and transformative about this approach. And by the way, this isn't new, right? A lot of people do this. In the US, a lot of people do factoring deals. They there's the company called Pipe that does, you know, provides um, uh, loans to SaaS companies. So it isn't but new. That's, in the United States, though, it's niche. Whereas what you're talking about, it's more, this is more a core thing that is applicable to the majority well, of these. Well, I would argue that that's like a side project. That's innovating at the margins. Mm -hmm. In Africa, this applies to everything, everything, literally everything. And so the market is actually much, much bigger. And so the, the three ways that it actually transforms how finance works is number one, it's forward looking, not backwards looking, right? Just like we said, it's not what you already have. It's how much value you're going to generate in the future. It's number one. Number two, because we're using data to, because we're getting all this data because it's all digital, we're using data to assess your uh, the, the credit risk. 
and I don't mean data like you know uh, how much how much how often did you pay back on time? No, no, no. We're using data of how healthy your business is. All right, Andy, how many subscribers and revenues did you collect last month? A million bucks. Great. We'll give you a loan for sixty percent of that. You've been collecting a million bucks a month for the last twelve months. It's very likely that you will continue to do that. And, oh. and I, pre I presume that if, if folks are transacting through their mobile phones, the cost to collect, process, analyze, underwrite this data is, is virtually zero, right? It's super efficient. Exactly, exactly. And so that, that uh, the third way is transformative is because you can completely change the servicing of the financing, just like you said. So instead of saying, hiring some mean person to call, Andy, where's my loan repayment? Andy, come on, I'm going to send somebody after you. Or if I can't get you to answer my phone, I'll settle, sell it to some collections agency for 80 cents on the dollar. Instead of doing that, I'm actually collecting straight from your PayPal account. Mm -hmm. ah. That digital transformation has happened in Africa. Every day, literally, there's a new business popping up that essentially... I call it service, service, turning something into a service, right? I call it. And it's a lot of uh, payment transactions in Africa occurring by mobile phone. So it's like they're, they're even more so in the United States. Wow. Okay. So it's not even so, you know, in the US, we're dominated by credit cards. Everything is through mobile these days. Yeah. It's interesting, you know. Uh, in you know Asia, in certain countries, they kind of have almost leapfrogged the telecommunications infrastructure yeah. in the United States. In many cases, going straight to mobile phones, whereas it took in the United States, it took a while to kind of go from landline and cable, DSL, all this telecom infrastructure. Really, once you have your mobile phone, presuming that you have a good connection, you're a, you're tapped into global infrastructure. Yeah. Of, of whatever. I want to key in on you know the thing that you just and sorry to go a little bit philosophical here, but I think it's an important philosophical idea. We're leapfrogging, sure, in the payments, and everyone knows about things like M-Pesa in Kenya, where everything's through mobile phones, etc. But I think where the most interesting leapfrog is in our current context is going straight from a analog peer-to-peer -peer economy, which is what it is or what it was certainly 10, 20 years ago. Skipping the centralization phase where everything had to be part of a company for it to work and going straight towards a digital peer-to-peer -peer economy. Mm. So instead of every taxi driver working for a taxi company, everybody can be an independent taxi person or driver, I should say, and then transact over a digital platform. Interesting. So it's it. this also has implications for what's what's the word almost like organizational structure organizational design um yes and this is why i think africa is so uh gosh well placed is the wrong word it's such a incredible canvas for this sure you have china you have a strong central government well too strong perhaps many would argue right mm -hmm. so you can control everything and make things work despite the inefficiencies despite the you know the abuse of human rights etc 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 right can you do that in Africa? Yeah, not at aggregated scale, right? You don't have, you can't unify the whole continent. You can't even unify 
half you can't even unify a quarter of it. Mm. So the only way this will work, the only way efficiency will be created in many uh, many of these markets is if you digitize it. And that's what's happening. And what our company is doing essentially financing that digitization, not just with equity investments, but we're basically saying, let us be your venture debt provider, if you will, mm-hmm. and help you go from a thousand motorcycles to a hundred thousand motorcycles, help you go from 30 pay-as-you-go solar-powered refrigerators to 5,000 pay-as-you-go solar-powered refrigerators from uh, 100 uh, pay-as-you-go water pumps to 10,000 pay-as-you-go water pumps. Because, And this is where I'm going to go all the way back to the beginning of the conversation, because where else are you going to get that money? Are you going to go to venture? Well, I think it would be foolish to fuel that CapEx growth with venture funding. And any startup entrepreneur knows that. And commercial capital, ugh, painful and slow. And you may not never even get over that chasm to get there. So we're filling that gap. And we think it's a $5.2 trillion gap. The World Bank says it's a $5.2 trillion gap. And we think we can capture that for all emerging markets, not just Africa. Those so understanding that you know the model is different in a lot of ways, the underwriting is different, the scaling is different, et cetera, et cetera. But is this essentially private credit then? You know, it, a, like a new form of private credit? It is absolutely private credit. And there's nothing wrong with credit, but private credit with a different way of underwriting. Yeah. I think that's the critical piece. So then I want, I'm going to shift, shift. I'm going to take off my uh, saving the world hat and I'm going to put on my, you know, investor hat, investor who wants high returns hat. How does this work from the perspective of an LP? And by the way, private credit, far from being a bad thing. I mean, it's like, it's the grooviest thing since sliced bread right now. I mean, it's very, very popular asset class right now. And so this, you know, there's nothing wrong with, to to me, there's nothing wrong with describing that label to it and, and saying, here's how it's different. But how does the platform work? You know, what, what kind of returns IRR do investors target, you know, are your investors, are they looking at it from that financial lens primarily, or is it, you know, is it? Yeah. So um, we get both. We get folks who look at it primarily from uh, um, commercial lens or return lens. And we also get folks who do it initially primarily for impact reasons, but then scale up or get hooked, if you will, for the returns. Uh, We have people who start off with a quarter of a million and then before you know it, they're at 3 million. Um, because they realize, oh, this this is working, and the data is there to show that it works, um, and that's the way we want it, right? You, you, you know, you can't do it just on somebody's word. You got to see the data. You got to see that this is truly giving you a return before you can do it. But let me just, yeah, the the, the short answer is double digit re- double digit returns, right? Investing in short term, we're not talking about wait ten years for your equity investment to give you something. But in as as short as three to six months, you can get really good returns, right? Because we're investing in these things and they generate money immediately. And we use that cash flow to pay people back. I kind of like to equate it to, it's as if you're investing in a thousand pieces of real estate and just taking a portion of the, the, the rent payments that they pay all digitally. Mm-hmm. And so the moment you buy into it, you get a return because there's cash flow. 
Um, but I, I, I want to actually compare that to what's happening in the market because I think people, are, what? what are you talking about? 20% returns? Is that, you're, you must be taking advantage of somebody. Wait. The current rates that most small borrowers pay in emerging markets is 80, 90, 100% interest. Mm-hmm. Or if they're a bit more stabilized or slightly more medium sized, they're probably paying 30, 40%. And it's only those who can borrow a million or more, they're getting, you know, in the teens. And so when we're able to give people on demand liquidity, generate 20% returns, and we are able to then deliver that to our investors. Not the entire 20% because we make a spread. That's how we make money. Mm-hmm. But they get uh, returns in their teens. So it, it it it's just interesting, you know, to your point, the nature of entrepreneurship and productivity, it's not about dividing up a fixed pie. And if yes. I get a bigger slice, you get a smaller slice. When you offer... Uh, entrepreneurs credit at a dramatically lower interest rate than was available previously and at the same time offer investors an attractive return it's creating new value that's not it's not stealing from anyone else's slice of the pie that's actually creating bigger slices of pie for both of those stakeholders we like to i like to use the phrase we're creating opportunity and and you know, a lot of people like, oh, that's too vague. It's like, yeah, I know it, it is, but I, I believe fundamentally that is what we are doing. We're creating opportunity. I, I love it. And Jim, I have one more investment kind of question for you. I'm sure you get this one a lot. Very practical question. If you're a US-based high net worth investor or family office, what kind of tax form do you get? It's just like, is this, you mentioned Delaware, like, do I get a K-1 do I get a 1099? Like how, how does that, that, that would be speaking personally. That's, that's always my main hurdle when I'm examining yes. alternative investment. I'm like, what kind of paperwork is this going to generate? I yeah, know yeah, it's very straightforward. Um, yeah. When there is a disbursement and you can choose uh, when you get a disbursement, mm-hmm. uh, you get a 1099 INT because it's interest that you're getting. So, so just like, that's just like a Chase bank or, or whatever. Yeah. It's just a yeah. 1099 INT. Wow. So it's so then it is it is essentially is it domiciled in the United States? Like I'm just getting it's it. It's a Delaware C Corp domiciled. Yes. And is it currently gated to accredited investors? Yes. Unfortunately, uh, we're operating under Reg D 506 C. Mm-hmm. So it is only for accredited investors. Um, that's not we, a problem for me. I mean, that's what we cover on the show is 506. Right. Okay. Fair it's enough. Not, it's Fair not enough. not a problem for me. I just you know and 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 you know, some of these, I, I would say this, I'm all for increased access, but I, I think there's also, you know, the, the aspect of with alternative investments, you have to be willing to do your research. I don't know that accreditation status is necessarily the best way to gatekeep that, but, you know, I always, any kind of private credit, any kind of alternative investment, you know, investors have to be willing to do the research, you know, so... Indeed. And accreditation is, I, 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 especially given the fiasco in Web3 and a lot of the crypto investments and what's happened there, I, you know, I, I think those rules are there for a reason. Um, and they're annoying, but look, we buy <laughs> number one. Well, we can't, we can't choose not to be. And I think there's good reason for 
um, you know, accreditation requirements and so on. So that's what we're living by. Fair uh, one, I do see us one day uh, seeing us offering a retail offering, um, but uh, you know that won't be immediate. That may be through uh, compliant Web three channels, but right now we're focused on uh, accredited investors. Understood. Uh, well, that being said, where can our audience of advisors and high net worth investors go to learn more about Untapped Global and your platform? Yeah. So we can go to our website, untapped-global.com. That's uh, with a dash between untapped and global. And uh, our credit investors can start uh, investing with as little as $350. Of oh, course, wow. just to let you know, the yields go up significantly with the ticket size. But if you want to be part of the emerging market picture about and just learn about what's going on in emerging markets and get your feet wet, you can do it for very, very little. I like uh, that. That's very, that's very intriguing. You kind of offer people a, an on-ramp, you know, if you're a yeah. little bit, if you're a little we nervous or you just. So, and, and we, we see the future as going back to what I was saying earlier, we see the future as letting as many people as we can have exposure to Africa, even if it's just to learn about it. Cause we think it's uh, at, at least my journey has been once you meet an entrepreneur in these markets, once you see the value that's created with just a dollar of investment, it's it, you, you, there's no turning back. I love it. I think that's a perfect note to end on. Jim, I appreciate your sharing your inspiring story, but also just the the platform that you're doing that's obviously changing so many lives in Africa, enabling so many entrepreneurs in Africa. It's also a great investment product for our global listenership and viewership. So thanks again for joining the show today. Thanks. Thank you for the opportunity to talk about it. That's it for today's show. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a rating and review to help spread the word to other investors. And we'll be back soon with another episode.